Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hayrick, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, Valdana, you know what I always say one of the best perks of being a journalist is, is that you get to meet these very smart people and ask these very smart people some dumb questions. Yeah. It's one of the, it's one of the choices of being a journalist. And what's great about working at Bloomberg is we have so many very smart people just sitting a few rows away. Yeah, and we can chit-chat with them whenever we feel like it. And ask them dumb questions. So many dumb questions. <laughs> dumb and questions. they give us smart answers. Smart answers. That's right. There are no dumb answers, just dumb questions. I don't know. Just for me and you, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can have a smart answer to a dumb question. If I've learned anything from Mad Magazine. Yeah. But anyway, I think as this You're talking proved, about our guest, right? I am talking about our yeah. guest. Yes. I'm so happy to have him. He is, can I say he's famous in our circles? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. a big deal. Our guest this week, he is famous in our circles. We all talk about him in the nicest possible ways. The suspense. I know. I'm dragging this out. Like, I want people at home listening to be like, who is it? Who is it? It's no other than Matt Levine, our colleague and Bloomberg Opinion columnist. And I'm so happy to have him on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi. Thanks for having me. Okay. The New York Times famously wrote about you a couple of years ago. They don't typically profile financial newsletter writers, I don't think. So it was a big deal. But maybe we can just start with you telling us, like, how did you become a columnist at Bloomberg? Well, I was a lawyer a long time prior to that. I left law for investment banking because it was 2007. And if you were a corporate lawyer, it felt like the the sort of right thing to do is to get into finance. And I didn't really know much about like the financial industry, like what people did all day. Someone offered me a job at Goldman and I was like, well, that seems like it can't hurt. And I did it for like four years, like structuring equity derivatives for corporate clients. And I like learned a lot and like, it was fun and interesting, but over time, you like learn less and become more of a like just salesperson. Like at senior levels, the job is like you get on planes and fly around to clients and make small talk and try to convince them to do deals. And I was much less good at that. And so I was kind of tired of it and I wanted to get out. And um, I'd always vaguely imagined being a writer without ever doing anything about it. And so I wanted to leave Goldman at the same time that a job was opening up at Dealbreaker, which is this small like finance and comedy blog that I was reading religiously, as was everyone on Wall Street in 2011 when I was leaving. And so I applied and they hired me and I sort of took a leap of faith and went to do that. And I did that for a couple of years. And then eventually Bloomberg noticed me. And Thank God they noticed you. <laughs> 
Well, it does give you such a unique perspective, both the law background and the sort of derivatives background at, at Goldman. It, it, it really puts you in a great position to, to do what you do and, and analyze basically the news flow. But Matt, my first question for you is, what is the total market value of pepperoni in the United States in any given year? So I read about this the other day because this guy like did this cockamamie calculation for his consulting firm, which I thought was so wonderful because it's like, such a stereotypical question. Like there's some like just random thing and like you get to it like in a consulting interview, like you ask some random question about like how many washing machines there are in the United States or whatever. They just like try to like judge your thought process. It was an intern, right? Was it an intern? Yeah, he was an intern. Anyway, he had like heard somewhere like a pepperoni CEO saying, we sell enough pepperoni to blanket the entire U.S. in a in a thin layer of pepperoni, and so he did that math. And if you do that math, you get like the market for pepperoni is larger than entire economy of the world for the entire history of the world. Like more pepperoni is sold in a year than all goods and services sold in the world in all of human history. It's probably true, right? So that seems wrong. Right. Sounds I would right. Say. It seems yeah. wrong. Sounds right. I don't know. You can go to the Domino's website and probably get most of what you need to know. Yeah. It's like $2 to add pepperoni to a pizza and they sell like a million pizzas a day and then you're kind of in the ballpark. Or Hormel's earnings transcript maybe. I don't know. I like Who sells pepperoni? I don't even know. <laughs> like figure, Hormel I think is the main. Yeah. But I like f- computing the entire square inch yeah. of the United States. Right. That's just like if you think about that for a moment, like <laughs> the United States is not covered wall to wall in cows or anything like it. <laughs> like not even 1% of the land in the US is covered by cows. And so like you'd really need to like squish cows pretty thin to make that much pepperoni. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. Anyway, I, bring I thought up, a lot about this for, for one day. I know you did. That's why Never I had to bring it up. I think it was like two, $2 quadrillion was the addressable pepperoni. Yeah. yeah. Right. But I bring it up because that that's what Matt's so good at is like finding some random financial news story and really dissecting it and unpacking it. And, uh, and teaching us all how things work or how they were done or how, how the, the calculations happen. How the pepperonis made. Okay, but I'm so interested. As Mike said, that's a really good example of a recent story that you did that was really fun and fun for people to read. Your entire column every day is some dissecting some very, very interesting story or aspect of something that's happening in markets. I'm curious about your process. Like, what do you do? Where do you look for these stories? Do people send them to you? I've always been so curious about how this works. And I'm, I'm obviously trying to rip you off. I go to a little website I like to call Bloomberg.com. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know, like probably 75% of what I write about is stuff that is kind of recognizably in the financial news, stuff that's like on the front page of Bloomberg or the Wall Street Journal or the FT or Dealbook are often all of them. And so like, there's no like particularly interesting process for finding like the big stories. People send me stuff and there's, there's stuff that I'm just like attuned to. Like I have a genre of stories called everything is securities fraud, which is where <laughs> public companies do like random bad things and people sue them for securities fraud. Like anything from like sexual harassment to like animal welfare stuff to pollution to now there's a lot of like anti-DEI backlash where Republicans have gotten into the game of suing companies for securities fraud because they like use transgender influencers in advertising and all that stuff gets like a certain amount of media coverage. But to me, it's like indicative of this like really big, interesting trend in like American securities laws where like all conduct 
gets reflected through through like the notion of securities fraud because it is easy to bring cases and like the damages can be really large and so you can like litigate you can fight over all sorts of like political and social issues by calling them securities fraud and i think that's like really weird and interesting and so each individual case might be kind of dumb but like the theme is big and interesting so i do get some of that occasionally people will be like i'm short this company you should write about how they're bad um <laughs> but and, and like sometimes that's annoying and i ignore it and sometimes it's like oh this is a really funny company i tell people that my favorite email to get or my favorite like ib message to get is you will enjoy this 8k <laughs> because like that, that has like a hundred percent hit rate because like someone who sends me that message one knows what an 8k is so if someone sends me an 8k being like this is a funny 8k it's probably a funny 8k and i will probably enjoy it i am a columnist and i don't do a lot of like you know, breaking of news. And so when someone's like, oh, you should look into this company, they're really scammy. I'm like, yeah, okay. But like, who am I going to call to confirm that? Right. Whereas like, if someone's like, look at this 8K, like the, the funny thing is like there in the public domain, um, publicly filed, it's sort of right in my wheelhouse to write about. Yeah. What's the funniest 8K you ever read? It's not an 8K, but there's this public company that was like this sort of like tiny shell of a public company. It was run by like one guy and he filed like, I don't know, 30, 10 Qs and 10 Ks, like periodic reports all at once. Like he was way behind <laughs> on the on the annual filings for his company. And so he filed them all at once. And they were just like complaining about how hard he was working. Like all of the stuff was like, <laughs> Mr. So-and-so gets no support and he's doing all these 10 Qs by hand. And they were very like, there's a range of public companies and most of their filings are sort of carefully lawyered and sensible. And then at the far tail, there's a lot of like very weird stuff. What I find fascinating is, you know, you've always kind of focused on some of the absurdities of of finance and the markets, but I feel like the markets are getting more and more absurd and and more more and more Matt Levine esque as as the years go on. And I, I'll give you an example. You know, you're talking about securities fraud. One one of my favorite columns of yours recently was about Ryan Cohen, who is the meme stock. He basically, he was long Bed Bath & Beyond, right? And uh, to, to some big amount of dollar amount. And they tweeted, someone tweeted something about Bed Bath & Beyond. And he replied with a funny quip. And he, he included the moon face emoji, which I've not, I, and to your point, Matt, I think in the comment, I've never even seen that emoji before. I don't think it translates to every device. Like everyone was calling it the moon face emoji and I looked at it and like, it's a smiley face. Right. But apparently it's a moon. Anyway, I thought it was a smiley know. face too, actually. It's just the smiley face, but like there's like, if you like hover over it, it says it's a moon emoji. Anyway, yeah, he tweeted this moon emoji, which I guess in like the code <laughs> of meme stocks means that the stock will go to the moon. And then he sold the stock like the next day, basically, or like two days later. Yeah. And so they sued him for securities fraud, saying that he was telling people to buy even as he was selling. You know, it's all funny and it's absurd and it's fun to talk about because of that. But I feel like there's a bigger issue. Let me just read a, a couple of lines from your column. You said, back in the olden days, I learned that securities fraud meant lying about things that would be material to, quote, a reasonable investor. But in the world of meme stocks, there are no reasonable <laughs> investors. What matters is not cash flows or business plans, but memes and influencers. And so the standards for fraud are perhaps different. You know, I think it's reasonable to say to a large extent that meme stock was a, a phenomenon of a particular macroeconomic and also social environment where like people were stuck at home, they were bored. Yeah. Robin Hood had sort of recently, like relatively recently come on the scene and like built a good product for gamifying stock trading. 
and like people are getting stimulus checks and there are a lot of factors combined to allow like a bunch of retail traders to get really into sort of irrational trading and i don't think that's like the main factor that is driving like the price of nvidia or whatever or like of treasury bills but yeah like that's a thing like and absolutely i've spent more time writing about dumber stuff than i would have five <laughs> years ago and that dumber stuff is often meme stocks or crypto the countdown has begun from may 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in doha for the carter economic forum powered by bloomberg Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm curious how you think about that. I mean, crypto, obviously, it's a very similar storyline, but are regulators kind of asleep at the switch on policing this stuff or should it be up to these plaintiff's attorneys should should we just allow the markets to have this sort of absurd element to them without really doing anything to correct it i think that regulators are not in the business for the most part of like correcting mistakes in financial markets right like if you think that people are buying stocks for irrational reasons like there's not so much you can do about it right and it's hard because like the the regulatory paradigm has always been in the u.s about disclosure and so when you know, there, in sort of the early days of meme stocks, some meme stocks, I think of kind of, this is more or less true of GameStop, were nervous about, their stock had gone up 10, 10x and they needed money. And they were a little nervous about raising money because they're like, our stock is at really weird prices and it's gonna, it just feels like fraud to raise money. <laughs> and then other meme stocks were like, great, people want to buy our stock, we're going to sell it to them, right? And that was like, AMC was big on that, but also like Hertz were bankrupt and their stock got memed up and they're like, okay, we're selling stock. I think they shut that down, didn't they? Didn't the SEC, the SEC shut, shut that down yeah, pretty quickly. But yeah. it turns out you would have done well buying the stock. But in any case, in response to that, the SEC basically said, you need to put out more disclosure. Like if you're, if you are selling stock because you're a meme stock and they phrase it differently, but like you know <laughs> what they mean, then you have to put out in your perspectives, like, we don't know why our stock is trading this high. It's probably for no good reason. You probably shouldn't buy it, right? And so like companies would do that. They'd like put out a prospectus saying our, our stock is trading at random prices for no reason. We don't understand it either. But like nobody reads that. Like, <laughs> right, like, right. like the whole disclosure regime just sort of falls apart in the face of like the meme stock phenomenon because you can say whatever you want in this perspective, but nobody is reading it or, or deterred by it. And like that's the bullet that the SEC has. And after that, like, okay, you want to buy it? You buy it. Yeah. I think it's really hard. And I think they feel obligated to say stuff and do stuff and commission reports and like testify in front of Congress and like create the impression they're doing stuff to the extent you diagnose the meme stock phenomenon as like a bunch of people online decided it'd be fun to buy stocks at really high prices. That's just not something the SEC has any, any like authority to stop. Right. And so they go to, after, or they talk about things that are ancillary to that. There's a lot of talk about payment for order flow and market structure and Right. Somehow you think if you change how the stock market orders get routed, that will somehow solve the memes. But it's like nothing to do with it, right? It's just something yeah. people get mad about online. Or they like the SEC has looked into short selling rules because some of the early meme stock phenomenon was about trying to squeeze short sellers. 
But regulating short selling more harshly is a strange response to that because like the short sellers weren't really the, they were the victims there as it were. But they looked into a little bit like, is there some sort of collusive market manipulation here? And I just think the answer is clearly no, right? It was people online saying, I like the stock. So there's not a lot they can do. And I think they're keenly aware that it's embarrassing, right? Yeah. If you want your capital markets to look sophisticated and professional <laughs> and driven by fundamentals and then when they're just memeing around you feel embarrassed about it it's just it's, it's not a it's not something they can fix but you know though i mean there is this cohort of people posting on reddit these wild conspiracy theories to help pump up the stock but even with that i'm not sure there's a lot they can do about yeah, that and they behavior. regularly go after like true pump and dumpers like yeah. people who are who are pumping stocks while they're selling them and who are lying about the fundamentals of the business but I think in a lot of the meme stock stuff, it's some combination of people who seem to be genuinely and often like pretty well-informed believers in the business, plus like just random enthusiasts. Yeah. And like, they're not lying. They're just like, to the moon. It's not a lie. <laughs> there's, nothing, there's nothing deceptive about that. Yeah. And so it's just hard to, hard to police that. When I went to see the Barbie movie, they played the preview for the GameStop movie. Oh. Did you know it's coming out? No, I knew there was one. Of I don't even want to see it. What I love when I read your columns and I read them Every day, I'm your number one reader, I think. Mike probably can't say the same about himself. <laughs> I, I read, read all of them every day. I read, the, you read all the top, way through the footnotes. Top to bottom, oh, the yeah, always. The, well, the footnotes are just are in case, because sometimes he saves like the funniest stuff for last. Yeah, often. Really. often. I, I have yeah. people who tell me they read it in reverse. Yeah. Oh, that's not a bad idea. I might start doing oh, that yeah. no, so I can get a good laugh idea. in at first. I usually go in and make sure he's not making fun of me for something. That's important. Yeah. Oh my gosh, he search, did, search my yeah. Name when and, if my yeah, you sometimes mention my articles and my heart stops. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> did I do this calculation correctly? <laughs> but anyway, what I love is that you do have these recurring themes. So one, like we were just talking about, is meme stocks. Everything is securities fraud. Another one is proximity to Elon Musk. I don't talk about that one so much because like that magic has gone away a little bit. Like for a while I was saying that the most important factor in financial markets was not cash flows, but proximity to Elon Musk. <laughs> and what that meant is like when he would like tweet about a, a, a word, a company whose stock, a company whose name was near to that word would stock would go up. Like fans of Elon Musk would buy stuff he tweeted about. And so he really did have the ability to manipulate the prices of things like Dogecoin and uh, to some extent Bitcoin and to a larger extent, the price of Tesla stock and a lot of other stuff. And I thought that was fascinating in part, just because like, I would like to have that power. I would use <laughs> it to make money. It doesn't, it's not clear that he ever did use it to make money. He just sort of wanted to, but that would be people. securities fraud. That would probably be securities fraud. It depends. <laughs> but yeah, that has dissipated a little bit, I think, partly because that's just a meme stock phenomenon, right? And people who are less bored and don't have stimulus checks are just less interested in throwing money at whatever Elon Musk mentions. And then partly because a lot of those trades have not gone particularly well. He pumped Dogecoin and it didn't do that great for people. And he did this ridiculous Twitter acquisition that I think went terribly for him. Yeah. And so uh, he might be less inclined to just invest with every, everything he's he's tweeting about but i think most of like i don't think people were buying dogecoin because they thought he like had a genius investing idea on dogecoin i think they were buying it because he was like a meme king and they liked participating in the meme and i think that whole phenomenon has just lessened 
Yeah. But what does keep happening is every time you go on vacation, he does have like the biggest news of the year. And then you are <laughs> pulled back. Not every time. I was out last week and he did only a few crazy things, including <laughs> he did tweet that he was going to drive to Mark Zuckerberg's house and beat him up, which is pretty crazy, but not like core financial news <laughs> that I felt obligated to cover. In previous vacations, he's done things like buy Twitter. Um, <laughs> and so like those I have to write about, even from vacation. Yeah. Well, Matt, one of uh, your perennial themes that I've always enjoyed, it used to be anyway, people are worried about bond market liquidity. I don't know how many stories we've all seen about people worried about bond market liquidity. And then sure enough, last year, we have the worst bond market of any of our lifetimes. Bear market in all manner of bonds. I don't think I heard liquidity blamed once for any of it. Were, were, are those worries over? I hope that I embarrassed people out of writing something. But also, I do think that like the theories and th there's like two veins of bond market. People are worried about bond market liquidity. One is just like worried about bond market liquidity. It's just there's a story of like pre 2008 banks had a lot of balance sheet to commit to market making in bonds, and they did that by like absorbing losses and making tight markets, and generally making it so that if you wanted to move a lot of bonds, even in a falling market, you could do so efficiently. And post 2008, with higher capital requirements and more regulation of prop trading and just less risk appetite from banks, there's no shock absorbers anymore. And now if you want to sell a lot of bonds, you'll drive down the price by 20%. It'll be a bloodbath. And like, I think like there's truth to that at some margin, right? But like, it used to be fairly cheap to trade bonds. Like investors were subsidized by essentially banks underpricing liquidity risk and like that led to 2008 right and now it's like a little bit more expensive to trade bonds because banks don't under underprice liquidity provision as much and you know it's fine like it's not it's like the worry was not it would be like 10 basis points more expensive to trade bonds the worry was that like bond markets would seize up yeah. if like rates went up or if there are credit problems and like no one would be able to sell and it would be a bloodbath and it just never happened right like rates went up and it's that that worry never really came true the other worry was that like bond ETFs. For some reason, it was always ETFs, not mutual funds. The ETFs created a liquidity illusion where people could like day trade, you know, in and out of the ETF, but like the underlying bonds were less liquid. And in a scenario where everyone wanted out of the ETF, the liquidity would dry up and it would be a disaster. And I think like in some of the dislocations around COVID, there was like a little truth to that. Like there was a little bit of like right. dislocations between ETF prices and bond prices, but not in a way that like caused a big crisis. And I think the sort of latest research is that ETFs actually contribute to the liquidity of the underlying bonds. <laughs> I love ETFs, so I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, you love Something bonds good. too. You love Ugh, hate bonds. When you said bond market liquidity, I I tuned out. <laughs> I can't believe how long we've gone without really doing a deeper dive into crypto, which I okay. feel like is a, a very much recurring topic for you on a weekly basis because there's so much news in crypto worth uh, examining further, I guess, writing about. How do you choose even, given everything that's going on in crypto, how do you choose what to focus on? The answer to how do I choose is really simple. I'm not that interested in crypto except that it is an amazing, amazing laboratory for understanding real finance because it's just like people rebuild like these schematic versions of stuff that exists in the world. Like they're like, what if we had margin lending? 
let's build it in a really dumb way. And then you get to see how it breaks. <laughs> and it's so fun. And they do that so much. And so like, I'm interested in crypto stories that are like, that like illuminate like good or bad financial market intuitions. And there's so many of those. I mean, frankly, like what I often write about in crypto is the sort of big headline legal battles over whether it's legal in the US, which I don't think is that interesting, but which I think is important. And which like, I have kind of stayed at a position there where like everyone in crypto thinks that the, the SEC is like wildly overreaching in saying that crypto, most crypto tokens are securities. And I think the SEC is clearly right. And I think most crypto is not entirely, but in, in, in like meaningful part, a way to try to get around the securities laws that have existed in the US for a hundred years that are designed to prevent people from going out and raising a lot of money from the public by selling shares of their business project without like certain disclosures. And I think most crypto tokens are clearly people raising money for their business projects without those disclosures. And the SEC thinks that, and most people in crypto think that's crazy. So I, I find myself getting involved in those debates and writing about that a lot, but I don't think it's that interesting, right? From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Given all the enforcement actions we've seen, Coinbase, Binance, the, the Ripple lawsuit, are you any more comfortable with saying what the SEC considers as a security and what isn't right now? Do you think that clarity is there yet or is it still? Clarity's been there for years. They think they think every crypto token is a security except Bitcoin. And like, they're not going to say Ethereum is, although they think it is. And this is totally clear. Like, there's no lack of clarity there. It's like, just people are mad about it. And by the way, like, the SEC could well be wrong. I think they're kind of right, but like, they've had a mixed record in court and they've had one big loss. And some other cases where like, They've won, but it's like a little, the language is bad for them. But no, I think like the SEC's position is really, really, really clear. They've been a little slow in enforcing that position, but that's changing. But like the, the action right now is whether courts will agree with the SEC and also whether Congress will, will rein them in. The loss you're talking about is, is the Ripple case, right? Sorry, the loss is the Ripple case, yes. So yeah. that's XRP. So is XRP a security? That's a Ripple token, XRP. I mean, I don't know. That case is going to be appealed. I mean... <laughs> The, the the finding in court was incoherent, but I mean, it's kind of that XRP is not a security and it's kind of that it's sometimes a security when it's sold to institutional investors, but not when it's sold to retail investors, which is not really the way the securities laws work. Yeah, that's, that doesn't seem like that that will stand. I feel like that is too weird of a judgment. I don't, I don't know. It, like, do you see that getting overturned? It, ultimately, where do, you, where do you see it all going? Do you think Congress is going to sort of finally get on the ball and and codify what is and what isn't, or is that, is that wishful thinking that that's going to happen? I think there is a good chance Congress will do that, which I think is very weird because like, to me, 
two years ago, one year ago, crypto was this like industry, like hot industry that had a huge lobbying presence and people could sort of align themselves with it as the wave of the future. And I think if you look at it today, it's much smaller than it was. The way of the future is AI now, not crypto. Right? Every VC has pivoted from crypto to AI. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of the prominent crypto founders who were posing for, for handshakes with senators are at least their project has gone bankrupt and they're suing each other. And like sometimes they're in prison, right? And so, like, I don't know if I were a congress, like, I feel this is just someone who wrote about crypto. Like, I feel burned by crypto. I'm like, I'm not going to give these guys the benefit of the doubt anymore. I'm not going to advocate for them anymore because like they're all in prison. I think if I were a congressman, I would be like, man, I pose shaking hands with a lot of people who are now in jail and I don't want to do that again. So I'm not going to introduce a bill to like make crypto more illegal. But that's not apparently what the congressmen think. And there continues to be a lot of support for crypto in Congress that I find to me, it, it, it just seems like a strange political calculation. And maybe some of it is like there remains lobbying money in crypto. Six months ago, I would have been incredibly pessimistic about Congress doing anything to regulate crypto just because like it seemed after the collapse of FTX, it just seemed so dead. And now I'm, I'm more optimistic that, that Congress will, will do stuff. There's also like away from the crypto industry, there's just like the political dynamics of like the SEC, Gary Gensler at the SEC is a very aggressive regulator. There's a strong deregulatory movement in the Republican party in Congress and also in the courts. And so away from the substance of crypto, like there might be just a move to limit the SEC's power and like limit just the effect of regulation and the crypto might be a sort of like accidental beneficiary of that. Matt Levine of Bloomberg Opinion, such a uh, treat to catch up with you. Just for the record, I did find a research report from 2021. The global pepperoni market, $2 billion a year. I, that sounds low to me. I, I That's way too low. Way too low. I think it's two quadrillion is the right answer. Well, Matt, yeah. we can't let you go just yet, though. We, we have a tradition on this podcast where we all share the craziest things we've seen in markets. I'll confess, uh, your column is often a very good source of the craziest things. Which is why the seen. bar is high for you to That's choose something That's why the bar is high. But Vildana, why don't, you, why don't you get us started? Okay, I have a story from the Wall Street Journal. It says, job hunters are invading dating apps. So people looking for jobs, they'll use dating apps. They'll connect with people at companies they want to work for huh. or work at. And when they get romantic messages, they'll feel icky about it. They'll send their resume back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but they'll feel icky about the romantic messages, but they're really looking to network and hopefully get a job placement, is which it, I think it, is so interesting. Is it working for any of them? There's a couple of examples in the story and it says like this one woman, she didn't end up at the at the company where she was like chatting this guy up, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but it helped with the networking and ultimately she ended up with her job. Huh. How do you know they're not all the guy Matt wrote about who was uh, pumping up options for, uh, what was the name of that club? The, uh, the Soho House. Soho House, the guy. Oh, that that was a good story, <laughs> yeah. What did, the, what did the guy do? He said he created a bunch of fake female Profiles, profiles, yeah. And then he would match he, with guys and tell them to, to meet at Soho House. Yeah, so they would have to buy the membership, yeah. <laughs> That's a brilliant scheme. I don't know. Securities, securities fraud? Securities fraud, Matt? <laughs> uh, I read the column to find out. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know. If it's it was a joke, I think. Like, he clearly wasn't doing it. But. Yeah, yeah. 
It, Did he meme up the stock? I don't know. Yeah. It, if he didn't do it, I, I don't know. It sounds, it sounds like it well, almost Well, he had good work. earnings, right? Yeah. 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 All right. Matt, how about you? You see anything crazy this week? Not to cheat and tap my column, but I've... Oh, by all I'm, means, go ahead. I'm fascinated by the situation with Sculptor Capital Management. Sculptor is this like publicly traded hedge fund firm. And it's got a, you know, a hedge fund manager who runs it. And it's trying to go private. It has agreed to sell itself to another firm that would keep that manager in place. And like a bunch of other hedge fund guys have just lobbed in a topping bid saying, no, no, we should buy it. We should kick out that guy and we should take over this fund. It's such a, it's like you, you wonder why it doesn't happen more often. And the answer is basically because there are not a lot of publicly traded hedge fund firms, right. but it's such a like aggressive move of these guys wanting to buy a hedge fund firm because they think they do a better job of running the hedge fund than the guy who's running the hedge fund. And it's also, it's weird because it's like, it's a bunch of them. It's like Boaz Weinstein and Bill Ackman and Mark Lazary, who are all big hedge fund managers teaming up together to go in on this other hedge fund and they're doing it in their personal accounts. Like they're not like they all run hedge fund firms, but those firms are not buying are not trying to buy the sculptor. They're just, they're doing it with their own money, I guess, because like they're hedge fund managers in their day job, but they want to run a hedge run, want to manage a different hedge fund as a hobby. I just think it's so wild and it's going to be like a contested M and a situation. And like, there's all sorts of accusations and just like the under, like the, just the basic gist of these hedge fund guys trying to, to steal hedge funds from each other is, is just, is very unusual. That is a great story. All right. I'll give you mine. I'm always fascinated. I I don't know about you guys. I assume we all take public transportation to work, right? So I've never been a big car guy. I take know. a helicopter. Oh, of course you do. Yeah. I've never been a big car guy. And especially people that buy these vintage cars for a lot of money that never quite got that. Mm -hmm. But it's great for crazy things. I'll give you this story from the BBC. This wasn't like a car. It was the burnt-out shell of an old Ferrari. It was from 19, the 1950s. It was a 500 Mondial Spider Series 1, if that means anything to anyone. One of 13 made. It was driven by Ferrari's first like official race car driver, Franco Cortez, who I, it doesn't sound like he was that very good at being a, a race car driver even. He, he finished 14th in this 1,000-mile race across Italy, he crashed the car a bunch of times. Anyway, someone bought the remnants of this car. Why was it burned out? I guess because he would crash and it would oh. catch fire. But then it was it was in a big warehouse fire at some point. Um, and so finally, what was left was basically a big heap of scrap metal. All right. But it is the scrap metal of this famous old school Ferrari racing car. Someone stuck it in a barn in Florida and it just sat there with these other busted up Ferraris for years and years. And then Hurricane comes along in 2004, blows the roof off of the barn and they discover these Ferraris. And then it's been a hot collector's item. Like since. rusty Ferraris? Rusty. Th this isn't even like, it's just basically the shell, like the, the outer body of mm -hmm. it. And it's no it's, color. It's like a gray and it's burnout. And, you know, they're saying theoretically you could refurbish it i am highly doubtful of that i wish i could show you the picture uh on the podcast but i can cannot but you know what time it is yes it's i'm sorry to inform you matt but you're now a, a contestant on our game show here the price is precise what do you think at sotheby's the winning bid was for basically a hunk of scrap metal that used to be 
a Ferrari race car in the 1950s. How much does a regular Ferrari cost? Well, I should know because I own so many. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good question. I don't know. This I'm guessing they, they're probably half a million now. I don't. I have no idea. Oh, are they? Yeah. So this would be more. I try. No, but to I think a vintage Ferrari is like a like a real classic Ferrari is yeah. probably even more. Right. Right. In, oh, the, good. in the collector's market now. I'm one point two million. million. I'm, no, I'm going with one point two million. I'm going with one point one nine million. Okay, 1.19 million, and you said 1.2. 1. 1. I was going to go uh, with 1.2. Matt's watched the prices right uh, before. $2 million. $2 million. I win. You win, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I beat Matt Levine. Wait, though. I, I'm questioning your strategy there. 1.19? I yeah, think he you went. meant $1. Yeah, you're right. That's not actually prices right rules. Because it's <laughs> the closest I've over. But I just want to be closest. Yeah. I didn't realize it closest without being, because there's only two of us. I figured it was less than that, but whatever. That's true. Well, yeah, you wouldn't want if it was less than that's that's fair. Enough. So wait, it was two million. I would have awarded him two million. Yeah, for a scrap bunch of five hundred Mondial Spider Series One, one of thirteen ever made. Two million. No comments. Two million. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they'll make an NFT out of it. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, Matt Levine, uh, thanks so much for your time. Uh, always just uh, a pleasure to hear your thoughts about. Boy, we covered. All the, all the most absurd topics, I think. Really appreciate it, Matt. Thank you. All right, thank you. Thank you, Matt. What goes up? We'll be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. You can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Vildana Hyrick. Mike Regan is at Reganonymous. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong, and our head of podcasts is Sage Bauman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.